I awoke to the sound of voices outside. The director whose party my parents had taken my grandmother to the night before was outside at the table, under the umbrella, eating brunch. The director's wife was sitting by his side. My grandmother looked well under the shade of the umbrella. The director began to talk about the death of a stuntman on one of his films. He talked about how he missed a step, of how he fell headfirst into the pavement below. He was a wonderful boy. He was only 18. My father opened another beer. My grandfather looked down sadly. What was his name? He asked. What? The director glanced up. What was his name? What was the kid's name? There was a long silence, and I could only feel the desert breeze and the sound of the jacuzzi heating and the pool draining and Frank Sinatra singing Summer Wind, and I prayed that the director remembered the name. For some reason, it seemed very important to me. I wanted very badly for the director to say the name. The director opened his mouth and said, I forgot. Just one of the depressing anecdotes told of the primary character Clay of his past in the book Less Than Zero by Brad Easton Ellis. Welcome to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallum. And I'm author Zachary Kelly, and we're talking about the works of Brett Easton Ellis all this month, focusing specifically on his debut novel, Less Than Zero Today. It was interesting reading that again. You and I have both actually read this novel together sort of a couple times. We were part of a book club that Mm -hmm. read it. And every time I kind of return to this novel, I admire it more and like it less, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. I actually find that this book is increasingly difficult to read as yeah. I get older. Yeah. And I think it's more and more about seeing wasted youth and about how much potential so many of the people in this book have and how it amounts to nothing, just nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting book to kind of reconcile with our thoughts in 2022 of privilege, uh, specifically white cisgendered straight male privilege Mm -hmm. in the character of Clay and I can see why this novel when it came out was I would say misinterpreted by many as the novel of the times and this almost like um, Hemingway's um, immovable feast type glimpse Mm -hmm. into the LA scene but reading it now in 2022 with the benefit of hindsight, with the maturity that you and I hopefully both have, it is really dark and I don't find a lot to like about any of the characters in this where I think maybe when I read it as a younger man, the character of Clay was far more sympathetic. And I actually had to go back and look and see if there was any like major edits that he released with this novel. Mm-hmm. Because I just remember maybe empathizing a little bit more with Clay, not agreeing with him, kind of thinking he was kind of this passive creep. But looking at it with hindsight, even the protagonist who we're meant to like and who that brilliant passage that you chose to open this, this episode with, which I think is intended to give Clay some sense of sympathy, right? right? Some sense of empathy for other people is kind of a misdirect because... Clay, is is he any better than Rip or Julian or any of the people around him that are doing these awful things if he's just kind of going along with it and not doing anything to stop it or curb it? The way I look at it is this environment that Ellis paints for the characters here, this Sherman Oaks area and the Hollywood scene, basically is that if it hasn't destroyed you yet, it will soon. That's mm-hmm. the way I look at this. 
And so it becomes almost a challenge to see how long people can last before it does destroy them. I think one of the bits of sympathy, as you point out, and is referenced super briefly in that quote, is about Clay's grandmother. There's this really disturbing set of passages that occur throughout this book where it's clear that his grandmother is very ill and nobody seems to care. Right. He's watching this and he does feel, he does care, and he hasn't even been given a good example of like what to do about that. His grandfather, so his grandmother's husband, doesn't seem to care at all about this mm-hmm. either. And the final scene with them together is just, it's empty. So in the story, even of his own age, of his same cohort, that they're either dropping out of school or they're addicted to drugs and they can't function or they've just totally lost their way. At least Clay is like, I need to get out of here. And that I do find as one of the admirable things about him. It's sad that just getting out is an act of heroism in some respects. In, in the concept of this narrative world, it is, you know, that, that is kind of his hero's journey, is just to kind of get out of this weird world of drugs and murder and pedophilia. And it's just insane to think about anybody growing up like this or being exposed to like this at such a young age, to being desensitized to this. And it's, as we talk about the author, which we're talking about all month, Brett Easton Ellis, it is interesting because I gotta imagine a lot of this stuff maybe it's punched up a bit for you know the fictional world but right, right. you gotta imagine he saw a lot of this himself mm-hmm. because this whole tonality that exists in Lesson Zero permeates every single one of his novels be it Glamorama or Lunar Park or certainly American Psycho Rules of Attraction you get this sense of as you said in uh, last week's episode a world populated by ghosts these people who don't have any feelings this world of sociopaths where there's no empathy anymore and everything is just filled with materialism and avarice and I gotta imagine there's a lot of truth to that both what we've seen in you know 2022 coming out of Hollywood and kind of the reconciling that Hollywood's had to do with its Mm -hmm. own industry but then also just in general that concept of privilege and certainly we talk about privilege in 2022 in a very disparaging way but I don't know that it brings a lot of privileged people happiness if this is anything to glean from this novel. No, it doesn't. There is nothing admirable or desirable about what you see in this. It's so bleak. Mm-hmm. And I got to agree with you as well on this privilege point. Like, there's a moment early on in this novel where Clay essentially has sex with this other teenage boy, I think it was, over at their house. He gets drunk can't find his pants in the morning and he's wandering around the living room and the maid sees this whole scene yeah and he's like "Eh, whatever like you know the service team in this house is so desensitized to seeing whatever nonsense and terrible behavior by this white privileged group of people that it's just like they're gonna get away with it and it's really disturbing like i think he intentionally put that scene in here to point out the privilege that exists also the fact i mean we can keep coming back to it but like nobody seems to care that the drinking age is 21 in (laughs) the united states at this time and we've got a number of characters who are uh, just straight up alcoholics Mm -hmm. and no one is doing anything to even remotely curb this behavior not a thing 
I agree with you. I think we always talk, you got to separate the author from the work always. In many cases, that benefits the work and not Brett Easton Ellis, as we've talked about in last episode, and we'll probably continue Mm -hmm. as we dive further into this individual. But in this case, I think it's the reverse, right? I think here we have this very narcissistic novel with this very bleak worldview, and then these furtive hints that the author, like you mentioned, the maid interaction, kind of tossing in to show you that he is aware of just how outrageous this all is and how uh, much disparity exists in the world outside of this bubble that these LA kids are living in. I think it definitely is a bubble when we look at it in the extreme that Brett Easton Ellis paints for us in this novel. Mm-hmm. But I also think that this is more broadly representative of a generation and mm-hmm. not necessarily everyone feeling it to this degree, but generally the sense of searching for feeling, which I think this book is really about everyone is is searching for feeling in one way or another, mostly in very negative manners. But that really seems to be the key motivation of the characters here. And so when we start this novel, you think it's going to be about Clay and Blair and the fact that they kind of drifted apart, but now he's coming back as they used to be boyfriend, girlfriend, and now he's trying to seek a relationship there. And the novel quickly moves away from that. It ends up in this very weird set of interactions with Rip, who's his drug dealer. And honestly, I can't really figure out why Clay doesn't buy more drugs at any given point in time. It seems like he's constantly having to buy more drugs. He has the money. Like, this is another matter for this. Like, he spends half this novel trying to find Rip for various deals. And I'm just like, I don't get that. But that's another matter altogether. But then we also start to key in on the relationship with Clay's friend Julian, Mm -hmm. who is ostensibly missing. And when he reappears, is desperate for money that he won't explain why. And some of the other characters we we meet along the way, who, as I mentioned in the previous episode, are mostly interchangeable with each other. Yeah, There's whole scenes where characters are introduced who never appear again in the novel. And, And that's just, in my mind, part of this interchangeability being expressed. Like, it doesn't really matter too much about who they are. They either are Amber Crombie and Fitch models, or... They are random drug dealers or hangers-on into this party scene that exists. Like, it doesn't really matter too much. But it's that search for feeling that, as we go through this novel, the extent that people have gone to and that society has empowered them to go to just keeps getting amped up. And what we're really seeing in this novel, if I would say it has a plot at all, is we're watching Clay peel back the layers of the onion of what's really been going on Mm -hmm. since he's been gone. What we see as perhaps suspicious behavior with Julian ends up that he has developed such an extreme drug habit. He's been forced into being a male prostitute. Right. We see characters who are not just doing heroin, but are somehow excited by the fact of being publicized and photographed and made to be someone because they're doing all of these drugs. We see, as you pointed out, human slavery and and sexual abuse and pedophilia going on in this novel. And that's not all of it. Like, it just is so sad to watch what's going on in this. And these characters, I sense that so much of this is motivated by they're all burned out. There's no dopamine left. 
Yeah. And this is them trying to find some sort of sensation and have turned to these most depraved ways in order to achieve that. Which again, is there's that inherent sympathy that is kind of baked into this novel that I don't know that we find in a lot of Ellis's future work. There's a little bit more heart in Less Than Zero. You gotta look for it, but it's there. I suspect that he moved away from intentionally Talking about the author as a whole, he's actually spoken many, many times about how disappointed he has been that Less Than Zero was as well-received as it was. He kind of wrote it for this L.A. crowd as kind of this dark mirror reflection on them. Mm -hmm. Didn't expect it to really pick up much ground after that and has almost become one of these totem points for a generation. I don't think that's what Ellis wanted for this novel, and he wrote a sequel to it, uh, Imperial Bedrooms, in 2010, which, with all of the same characters, both Less Than Zero and Imperial Bedrooms are Elvis Costello references, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough. It's fascinating to see where some of these characters kind of take that leap. We've got this character, Julian, in Less Than Zero, who, as you said, is really victimized because of the circumstances that he has in his life and is kind of forced into this world of prostitution in imperial bedrooms he is now the pimp he is now victimizing other people and continuing that cycle of violence um you've got rip who is you think is the worst character in less than zero uh, but becomes even more monstrous he's disfigured himself through such extensive plastic surgery he doesn't even look human anymore and he's just seeking more and more depraved things in imperial bedrooms And then you've got the character of Clay, who is irredeemable, I would say, in Imperial Bedrooms. And to quote Brett Easton Ellis, the most evil character he's ever written, and that's including Patrick Bateman. Clay is a horrible, horrible human being by the time we catch up with him. And it it is so interesting to remember that Lesson Zero kind of ends with that sense of hope or light that he is distancing himself from this world. Mm Mm-hmm. But by the time we we catch up with them, they're all producers in Hollywood, by the way, by the time we catch up with them in Imperial Veterans. Clay is a really satirized version of himself. I guess that just takes a already bleak novel and makes it even more bleak. Bleaker, is that a word? Yeah, and and, and I think that's Ellis's intention, right? I don't think he intended Less Than Zero to be a pop culture phenomenon. I think he wanted it to be bleak. And probably because of the uh, film adaptation, I don't think helped matters. If you've only watched the film, the Robert Downey Jr. film, and you're wondering what the heck we're talking about, they're virtually completely different stories. Lesson Zero, the movie adaptation is almost like our generation's Breakfast at Tiffany's movie adaptation. That is to say, all the homosexuality is scrubbed clean from the actual narrative itself. But yeah, I think because of that sense of 80s nostalgia, because of that capturing that moment in time, I think Ellis is a little bit ashamed of Less Than Zero, but then at the same time amused that it still has the legs that it does. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we'll continue to touch on here as we talk about these books is this sense of fluid sexual orientation Mm -hmm. that... I don't think I'd ever read a book before this where it was not just unclear as to what the sexual orientation of the characters were, but that they were actively exploring it in a very passive way. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is one of the strengths of this book, even though I don't think the portrayal of homosexual characters in it is good, and there's actually a lot of derogatory terms that are used here. Right, there's characters who have same-sex intimate relations, and then there's gay characters. There's, there seems to be this almost separation. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had never read a book like this, as I say, beforehand. And I don't know if it is or is not an accurate depiction of what was going on in the Hollywood scene at the time. But 
It is definitely one of the things that I find intriguing every time I read this book. And I'm not really sure what that says or what he was trying to say. Maybe he doesn't even have a point with it. He's just writing what he saw. Well, I think as we mentioned, you know, in our introductory episode to this month, a lot of this is semi-autobiographical for Ellis. And this is certainly a man who at various times in his life has publicly identified as straight, bisexual, pansexual, and I, I think now identifies strictly as a gay man. So I think he probably lived that fluid sexual orientation for most of his life. And it is an interesting reflection to see you know, how it literally progresses both in his actual life and in the works that he kind of chooses to to put out there. It's interesting, his kind of coyness with his own sexuality in media interviews. And I actually really respected some of his, uh, he's, a, he's a very blunt person, as we know from his tweets. And uh, it's interesting to me that sometimes I agree with things he says, sometimes I don't. But one of the things he said, early 2000s, Brett Easton Ellis said, mm-hmm. I don't want anyone, I don't ever want to publicly identify as one sexuality or another, because if you read less than zero or you read American Psycho as written by a straight man versus written by a gay man you're going to read them completely differently and I don't think he's wrong there Zach what's that sound oh that is the sound of whippets being done in the VIP line outside the Viper room ah so that must mean it's time to read tweets by Brad Easton Ellis here we go I am completely committed to adapting 50 shades of gray this is not a joke Christian Gray and Anna potentially great cinematic characters I would watch that movie. And it almost got made. He put in a very strong bid, put up his own money to adapt Fifty Shades of Grey. And I don't know why some sick individual in Hollywood didn't jump at the chance to make that happen. We're all less for it. I couldn't agree more. He lives a very interesting life and uh, I think chooses to use Twitter as a further extension of some of his fiction. He definitely is a provocateur. I think we talked mm-hmm. last time about why I hold his work in the esteem that I do, and I think that you're right. A lot of these comments really are within that universe as well. And his ability as a provocateur is really quite unique. He definitely says things in order to get people's attention, but he also tends to say things that other people aren't saying. He's not caught in the echo chamber of any particular group, and for that I always find him surprising as a provocateur. I could not agree more. Listen, we admire the artists from the, you know, 1930s and 40s who were putting gay characters in their novel or putting people of color in their novel, hence going against the establishment. Now that this broader sense of togetherness and communal nature and universality that we're in equality and equity that we're trying to put into our society today, to me, it just makes sense that you've got to have artists out there who are going to go against the grain again. And I think Brett Easton Ellis routinely does that. You don't have to like what he says. I don't particularly like what he says a lot of the time, but I do still believe in the role of the artist as the provocateur. And I think that we are less of a society if just because we don't agree with what an artist is saying or what they are needling at us, if we dismiss them entirely. Because those with great literary voices like Brett Easton Ellis, I do think have something to say about our society, whether we like it or not. Well, and Brett Easton Ellis definitely has a lot to say that is provocative and disturbing and thought-provoking in the novel we'll be discussing next week, which is American Psycho. Is this a culmination of our entire friendship that we're finally doing a podcast on American Psycho? I think it is. 
The thing about American Psycho that makes it so fascinating to talk about is it's almost a little universe into itself. We talked about the Ellis verse, mm -hmm. uh, but I also think that American Psycho is an interesting universe unto itself. And we do end up with this world where we have the book, and then we also have this interesting film mm -hmm. that Mary Heron created. And I really want to talk about how that film succeeded. Yeah. Where other films of Bret Easton Ellis did not, and yet the other ones were more faithful adaptations of it. Hmm. And if we're lucky, listeners, we're going to also talk about American Psycho the Musical. So stay tuned for that as well. So if you haven't already, please like the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Pick up a Brad Easton Ellis book if you haven't already. You might be better for it. I can't make a guarantee on that. It is worth a read, if only for the fact that it will make you uncomfortable. And honestly, in 2022, that's always a good thing. I agree. So with that, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.